Engaging Leader episode 85, a leadership course for the rising star featuring Kevin Allen. And if you like this conversation with Kevin, be sure to check out my other interview of him on Game Changer, which is our podcast about employee gamification. In episode 26 of Game Changer, Kevin and I discuss Planet Jockey, which is an online leadership training game for midsize and large companies based on the same principles that we'll be discussing in today's interview. You can find the Planet Jockey interview by searching iTunes or Stitcher or by going to engagingleader.com forward slash GC26 as in Game Changer, episode 26. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Well, you can buy a leadership book today for about $25, or you could get an MPA for hmm, $35 thousand dollars or more. But learning about leadership from a few decades of everyday experience and mentors, that's priceless, of course. And here today we're talking to Kevin Allen, who was the pitch man for the priceless campaign that uh, is, of course, MasterCard and uh, has been a very popular and successful ad campaign for many years. Uh, He's also the author of The Hidden Agenda, A Proven Way to Win Business and Create a Following. And now he's back with a brand new book. He's here to talk to us today about The Case of the Missing Cutlery, A Leadership Course for the Rising Star. Kevin Allen, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Well, thank you very much for having me. Kevin, the main story behind the missing cutlery was it sounds like your very one of your very earliest leadership experiences when you were brand new at Marriott is that right uh, you know i'm one of these kids who um you know single mom raised four kids in, in long island and and you know when it was come time for me to figure out what i was going to do of course all my uncles would say yeah why don't you be a steam fitter and various things <laughs> and uh, when i did go to college which many of my uncles said what are you doing that for I, I didn't know what to do because you don't you know have any advice and I went to I was working at Marriott mopping floors at the time at their airline catering facility at JFK and one of the fellows said uh, what are you doing after graduation I went well um, I don't know he said well why don't you be an assistant manager so literally became my first job and I don't know why it is I don't know if you've had this experience but any time I got a uniform whether it was in gym class or now at Marriott why was it ninety sizes too big. <laughs> you know, my, my bloomer shorts, so now I'm wearing this lab coat, you know, with, with sleeves down to the floor, scared half out of my life that, you know, that I was now the man. <laughs> and where a lot of people get put into that position where you're a brand new leader, you've got some people who are much more experienced and older than you, some would feel, I think, the, the, the need to prove themselves uh, through puffery, if you will, but you sort of had intuitively knew that wasn't going to work in this situation. No, no, not at all. And, and, and it's amazing because you, you walk in there and everybody is purposefully at work doing what they know how to do. I didn't know how the, the first idea on, on what to do about it. And, and, um, but then, like all things, you know, I, I think careers are made not kind of in a, in a nice steady linear. I think they're made like stair steps by some kind of happening and it's really kind of how you respond to it. So, you know, in walks, 
the, the Eastern Airlines rep. Now, of course, a lot of people may not know that Eastern Airlines was once upon a time was a very big airline. And the other thing to remember is that airlines had food all the time in every class of service. They even had they even had a little ashtray so you could smoke. <laughs> you remember <laughs> that? I, I never understood that smoking section was like seat 23 and then 24 was non-smoking. It was just madness. But in any case, um, in he comes and announces um, the cutlery is missing by the thousands. And we're not very happy about this, and we're holding you responsible. And if you don't find it, there's going to be big trouble, you know. So that was my first task, you know, how on earth I was going to find out where on earth literally hundreds of thousands of bits and pieces of silverware were going missing. And this was back in the day when it was real, well, we'd casually call it silverware, but it wasn't made of silver. Yeah. It was flatware. This was not, this was pre-9-11, so it, this wasn't just plasticware. Oh, yeah. And they, they had, I mean, literally every, even the short hops managed to figure out how to serve hot food. And, of course, you had two forks, two knives, and so there was bucket loads of these things. And they, I think there must have been 5,000 meals a day out of that place. So you can imagine the tonnage of stuff that was brought in. So, well, okay, so now I've got to figure out where I'm going to find it. I looked everywhere. I looked in the stock room, and I looked here, and I looked high and low, nothing. And then I thought, ah, the dishwashing room. There must be a clue here. And I, wandering through the dish, a little surprise inspection at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm wandering through the dishwashing room. And um, lovely people, by the way, because, you, know, you know, I went to school on a union scholarship, and I had a very, I don't, kind of a nice relationship with these folks, and uh, albeit, you know, slightly standoffish from their point of view. And I decided to look in the trash compactor. So I look in the trash compactor, and there, gleaming, <laughs> is Eastern Airlines cutlery by the, by the hundreds I uh, think, what on earth are you people doing? And, you know, Ron, I guess maybe instinctively, you know, might have said, I command you, you're in trouble, and, you know, do the kind of I am command, I am in charge leader thing. I just kind of asked them, I'm like, what, what are you thinking? And these lovely people said, we, we can't get it clean. We try and try and try, but half of it comes out with these little marks on them. You know, so rather than just instinctively, you could see that they were trying desperately to do the right thing. You know, sometimes the conditions are right for employees not to do what they what they hope to do. And um, a wonderful woman by the name of Joe Dell, I remember well. She was like the Yoda. Looking aside <laughs> at one point, says, "Now listen. Now everybody around here knows fully well you don't know what on earth you're doing. <laughs> but just tell them you love them. Tell them you believe in them. And believe me." They'll solve it. Don't you start meddling because you're, you know, frankly, Kevin, you, you don't know what you're doing. You'll mess it up for sure. And how right she was, you know. And uh, it was really the placing my faith in them and, and connecting with them on an emotional level. And so basically the situation is that you, the guy from Eastern, who was a, a really gruff, almost terrifying kind of guy, who had intimidated even you, yes. had... Given made them feel so awful about the cleanliness of the silverware and that this tarnish sort of wasn't coming off, that they, that they decided that the best thing to do was to just if any pieces that were too dirty looking that they were just going to throw them away. <laughs> yeah, faced faced with the dilemma, rather than disappoint, and actually, which one of the statements they made to me a little bit later is they were worried about me, so somehow. You know, they were making me buoyant. I mean, they believed enough in me because I had reached out to them. I mean, one of the ladies, I helped her fill out her application for her son's college. She didn't speak English, she didn't speak English for goodness sake. 
But she saw that as an act of generosity and that I cared about it. To me, it was just a good thing. You know, mom says, do good, th- do good stuff, you know. So, you know, little did I know even back then that, that putting, your, putting your people before yourself and, and then as we often hear about this notion of being in service, but understanding what's in their heart and what they seek and what they fear and connecting yourself to it, they'll make you buoyant, you know, and they'll do anything for you. And indeed, they did solve the problem for me. Yeah, and it wasn't a simple problem, but when they had your support and and uh, really, your, when they really, once they really trusted you, they they figured out a, a rather clever yet simple solution for making all the the, the flatware look right. Yeah, they did, and, and I think you know the lesson for me over the years was I think, especially in larger organizations where there are job descriptions almost like little sort of boxes on an org chart. I think it really, I think we tend to underestimate just how extraordinary people can be under the right circumstances. You know, and I always remember one of the things I love is I'll often remind I'll go on to YouTube and I'll. Watch Kennedy's speech. We, you, we, we choose to go to the moon in this decade not because it's easy, because it's hard. And he said to himself, well, he was basically saying, I have an idea, we're going to the moon, okay? What do you think? Now, <laughs> you know, that on its face, when, when, you, when you communicate to people that, that I want or I believe we can achieve an impossible thing, people will rise to the occasion in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. Now, one of the things I love about this book, it's a, it's a fairly short, easy read, it provides all the ideas through some great real-life stories um, and starts with some big ideas and then provides an interesting model. But I, I got to ask, why you the, the pivotal, the, the sort of starting story and the main story that you come back to several times in the book is the story from your early Marriott days. Why focus in on that versus some of the other great stories, like, you know, when you led the team that, that came up with the Priceless campaign? Yeah. I think, first of all, I, I think while, while I ta- targeted, at least in title, for the rising star, I think this is a lesson for anybody who leads. But, you know, the world is loaded with really fine and wonderful stories about the exploits of wonderful people like Jack Welch and Jobs and just incredible leaders. And, you know, yet another story from me about some exploit is one thing, but I think everybody on the, in the world, whether you're, you know, a young kid starting out or someone, you know, in a senior position can relate to that first job. And while many of us don't want to admit that our knees were knocking, guess what? They were. And there is a, I think, a, there are just, sometimes there's just some fundamental truths that can be found in a, in a storyline as simple as that. Um, and so I thought, you know what, and the other thing is maybe there was a better way of connecting to people on a more genuine emotional level. And, and for me, that was the greatest lesson I ever learned. And, and I thought, well, let me just share that. And if, if they think I'm crazy, then they're right. I kind of am. Now, you used the term buoyancy uh, a little while ago, and that is a major theme of the book. T- tell us what that means. Well, you know, I think once upon a time, and I think it was another much smarter guy than I, I think it was Professor Cash, we talked about the supply economy and versus the demand economy. And, you know, in, in the old days, you know, we controlled everything, you know. I, I was talking to someone recently about, you know, there were only three television stations, you know. I mean, we controlled everything. We controlled the products that were going to market, so blah, blah, Organizations were hierarchical, like nice, fancy, you know, nice orderly org charts. 
And we basically top down, we said, do this and just travel to the organization. And, you know, as time has gone on, proliferation of products, um, um, the, the ability to make, uh, make decisions about what's right for me, and the shift of power and democratization fueled by the Internet to where, guess what? The folks out there, they're in charge, not us. You know, so we think, you know, people who run brands or, or, and companies that we're the ones calling the shots, boy, those days are gone. Which means that to lead by connecting both to your internal community, because I don't make a whole lot of distinction between the people who work for you and your customers. They're part of the same citizenship that believes in your company and your brand, which means if you target their heart and soul and what they believe and, and, and what drives them emotionally, um, they'll make you buoyant. They'll, they'll say, you are worthy of my support. I'm going to make you buoyant, including I'm going to fill in your weaknesses, uh, just like Joe Dell did, uh, I'm going to shore up your strengths, and I'm going to take you where you think we can go. So it's not, and buoyancy seems a little bit elusive. Uh, it doesn't. It's not something that you just get because you are have been anointed the leader. Oh, oh boy, you know, it's it just it just literally touched in my head. I, I remember at one point when I was coming up in McCann, I I went to the I, I, I wanted my vice presidency. I think it was VP or something. I was after. And, and I, went to, I went and had my little annual review or whatever it was, and I said, well, you know, I can't lead these people unless I get this title because then when I have the title, then I'll have the authority. And the old madman, his name was Mike, he goes, let me explain something to you, my friend. You want to lead, um, you are now dinner conversation, and you're not going to lead these people with a fancy title printed on the business card. You're going to lead because they believe that you are worthy of their support, and you earn that, and you earn that by the kind of relationship you create with them. So it's up to you. And I never forgot it. I thought, well, I, I was under this illusion that if I had the, the card and the title, that automatically meant I had authority. Nothing could be further from the truth. People will opt in. They may do what's asked of them, you know, the little, I'll make only what I need to do. But, if, but in terms of Great companies accomplishing great things are people opting in to say, I believe in this guy, I believe in this woman, and they are worthy of my support. Well, I want to get into a little bit more about how you create that buoyancy, but, uh, but first I got I to gotta just stop and ask you to tell us the, the story about that, that I think does a great job of illustrating the supply economy versus the demand economy. You, you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago McCann. So sometime after you worked at Marriott, you worked at McCann Erickson, which of course is one of the absolute, long time been the biggest name in advertising. Yes. And uh, at, and you, so you joined that, I think in the early 90s. I did, yeah. And uh, so there was a, a huge thing that had happened in the mid 80s that was still re- reverbing, reverberating or whatever the word I'm trying to say there. Uh, when you were there, and uh, so you learned a lot from it. Well, I, I did, and and it, it it when I got to McCann, because McCann was was synonymous with Coca Cola. I mean, they were just literally you know one and the same. And of course, for me as a kid from from nowhere, it was just oh, I am at the mighty McCann. This is amazing. But one of the stories we heard about was, of course, and as many people know about, was the 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 the, the Coke disaster of New Coke, and the introduction of this product. Now. You know, blind taste tests prove that Coke tasted better, new Coke tasted better than old Coke. Okay, so logically, smart people says, well, if we introduce this new flavor that people have tasted side by side with 
blindfolds on and said tastes better, well, it just seems natural that if we introduce it, there's going to be a wild success. And, you know, we all know what happened. The whole thing was an absolute disaster, and people went crazy. And, um, you know, even down, I think, you know, one of the rumors in the hallways, I don't know if this has ever been proven, but a woman wrote to the CEO saying, I believe in three things, my country, my church, and Coca-Cola. How dare you take it from me? (laughs) (laughs) And whether or not it was true or not, that was, it was basically drummed into our heads, even from those early stages, is guess what, guys? We don't own this product anymore. They do. And this this brand, or this this product is even a product. This brand is a belief system and something that they hold very, very dear to them, which means how a company behaves increasingly has become more important than actually what it says or, or even the physicality of what it makes. And so, you know, as my mom used to say, Kev, and she said this particularly for me, listening is not waiting for your turn to speak. Um, <laughs> you know, the hallmarks of contemporary companies, both, for their employees but and their customers is to listen with emotional antenna, so I like to say. So that that the big lesson there that the the old economy where these great big companies and their brands could tell us what to buy and in fact limit our supply based on what they wanted. Now the customers are in control and it's more of a demand economy. Yeah. And that took a while but then leadership eventually came to follow that same path where it's no longer command and control that really makes things happen. It, it, uh, the results seem to bubble up from the troops instead. There's just no question about it. And, and in a way, if you think about it, the lines that are blurred between... I mean, the old model is omnipotent management is able to basically box you know, their constituents into separate... So here's the employees, and I control them. Here's the customers over here, and I control them, and here's the advocates and people. And, and so basically my goal and my role is to kind of control this whole empire. You think of how the, the fine line between an employee of, on one level of a company and a, consu- and a customer on the other. Um, and, you know, they share the same Internet. They, say, they share the same ability to communicate. And, you know, there is nothing that's going to get hidden anymore. So what that means is that, that in, in a demand economy where this kind of transparency exists, um, how a company behaves, how it communicates, um, is going to be carefully watched. You know, do you remember? I think it was Nike. Um, it's a brand I love, actually. Making that, you know, the big flap over making uh, sneakers in third world countries, and there were young kids involved. Blah, blah, blah. They changed everything as a result of people saying, you know what, this ain't a good idea. Hmm. Now, they weren't penalized for that. In fact, their citizenship, as I like to call it, you know, brand citizens, said, hey, good for you, you listened. So it doesn't necessarily mean that companies won't misstep, uh, but it's a, it's a question of what they do about it. Well, there was a point in the book that you start talking about the hidden agenda, and this will kind of get us into how you become a, a, a buoyant leader. But right. this was where it suddenly hit me as, this is kind of amazing that a guy who at... at became a legend in the field of advertising and has mastered the art of figuring out what is the hidden agenda in the minds of consumers and in the minds of company leaders that we can, how much we can all learn from you as far as leadership, because so you're using the same, it's the same hidden agenda in within consumers and customers that, also is going to be the hidden agenda within the followers and the, the people on your team that can really make things happen. Yes, it's true.
true. I think the, you know, coming up as a pitch guy, I guess you could say, um, and you know what the best way I could summarize it, and I wrote about this in the first book, when I was trying to crystallize what it really means to to understand what I call the hidden agenda, which is the unspoken, deep, visceral, emotional motivation behind a sale, I called my mom, one of my mom's friends, Enid Merrin, and she sold encyclopedias door to door. So I said, okay, Enid, I'm going to write a book on, on how to sell stuff in, in an emotionally intelligent way. She said, what's that? <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> never mind that. How did you sell, how were you the top saleswoman for World Book Encyclopedia in 1965? She said, honey, it's very simple. A mother doesn't want a set of encyclopedias. She wants her kid to be president. I went, aha. <laughs> <laughs> so behind every sale is this powerful emotional motive. And these hidden agendas come in three flavors from my perspective. One is wants, which is a forward-leaning ambition or desire. The second is needs. Maybe it's a fear or reticence or it's something I'm lacking. And the other is value. So the decision or the motivation is on what you believe. And the trick I have found is to understand what that is deeply and, un- and keep peeling away the layers until you find it. And then you connect yourself to it. And then they, and whenever I want a business, I would always ask the client, okay, you got to tell me after our 12th glass of wine, why did you give me the account? And they would always say the same thing, because you get it. I'm like, mm-hmm. get it? What's the it? Yeah. And to me, <laughs> the it isn't product or anything. It's that you understood them deeply and, uh, and soulfully. Then I realized, well, wait a second. The fact of the matter is, if you think about it, a contemporary chief executive of any kind is pitching their people to follow them. Now, I don't mean that they to get up like an old, you know, shoe salesman and with, or an ad guy with a bunch of bunch of, you know, foam core boards. But in a way, the idea that you're taking the time to understand the powerful emotional motives on the minds of your people and then igniting them is the way people go, oh my God, I love this woman, I love this man, where are they going, I'm going to go. So you've got the, the hidden agenda, which comes in terms of wants, needs, and values. If, uh, if wants is about, based on ambition, how do you, what do you use to connect yourself to that? So I use a term what I call real ambition. And, I, and, and it was like I was alluding earlier with the, with the Kennedy thing. It's that the way to ignite someone who was motivated by, by, by a desire, a forward-leaning desire, is to crystallize and shape for them a real ambition. A real ambition is creating something amazing that didn't exist before. So imagine your organization to say, this is where we are, but how would you guys like to be this? And what people who are of that emotional orientation will be literally set on fire. They'll just go, I'm in, and wherever you're going, I'm, I'm going. And then needs is based on fear or lacking. How do you how do you connect? What do you use to connect to that? So similarly, you have, might have a constituency that is feeling um, uncertain. Maybe they've been beaten back by a, by some kind of marketplace problem, and that you're connecting what I call your core, and that is there's a special kind of asset or trait or ability you have that says out of a nearby phone booth, don't worry. I understand how you feel. And this competency, this ability that, that, that we have is going to solve that. Um, and, and similarly, in the case of values, 
is connecting on the basis. Uh, I'm sorry. The, 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 yes, values is c- connecting on the basis of what I call your credo. And now, credo is is Latin for I believe. And what it basically says is what your value system is. So what you can see is, on one level, you've got these various emotional motives, but it's terribly important to really have a a really deep understanding of your own real ambition, what your core is, you know, what you really believe your great strength is, and your belief system. And, of course, any great company or any individual who leads, um, you know, generally has very clear answers to those three things. So go back to your Marriott story. Can you illustrate how, how those three connections happened? Well, I think at any given point, one of those things is in operation. So usually, and while it's true, you know, all of those things are really at work, there's always one prominent thing that's at work. And I believe that what I realized is that both the employees and I um, ha- were driven by the hidden agenda of want. And what, I, and what I mean by that is they wanted to prove that they were worthy, that they were great employees, even though they were working in a dish room, that they were, they were worthy. And for me, I was setting out with the, 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 the desire and the want, I should say, to prove that I could lead. And somehow we, we connected because I created a real ambition that says, you know what? We're going to show George, uh, who I call the thug. I shouldn't have said that, but I did. <laughs> and they loved it because they immediately connected to say, let's show this guy what we are made of. So it's that kind of emotive connection, I think, that galvanizes comp- uh, employees to, to, to get behind you. Yeah, and so you connected with, what, with, with really their core, their real ambitions. That's right. I used, really felt that real ambition. I mean, of course, you know, when you're 21, you don't realize it at the time. But, you know, the other thing at times is, you know, follow your instinct. You know, that, that, that very often human instinct uh, about, about what you're feeling about the situation is usually right. So with your real ambition and your core and your credo, the folks in the team there felt that you authentically cared about them and that you were worth following. Yes. That word, and, and some of these words we hear a lot, we hear more and more about authenticity and genuineness. But, you know, I really believe that that will be the definitive hallmark uh, of, of any great leader going forward. I heard someone this morning tell me that they felt that one of the great characteristics of, of, a, of, a, of a contemporary leader would be curiosity. I thought, wow. I mean, you wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. Um, but but uh, that you can't hide now. There is just no hiding. There is no creating the management persona and that people will be able to judge you as you are, um, even if they don't meet you. You know, there's ways to, to understand and feel the, the presence of a leader. And I call, but, but you know, and, and, and so you, you simply cannot create that old-fashioned sort of demagoguery persona anymore. It's just not going to fly. No one will follow you because of that. Yeah, well, it's interesting, though. So you can kind of reduce the leader follower relationship to those three uh, qualities and it, it does simplify that okay it's not everything but if if you are connecting with their ambitions their wants and if you're if they really feel like you can solve these needs that they have which is kind of based on a fear and lacking and that yes. you believe your beliefs match up with their values yeah they're going to buoy you up and 
they're, they're going to do things not because someone's making them do it, but because they care about you and they, and they, they want you and the team to be successful. Truly. And that you're bound by a, a common belief system. You know, you look at great companies. Look at, a, look at an Angela Arendt. I mean, what an inspired, extraordinary woman, what she's done uh, at Burberry. And, you know, to talk to her is, is to, to listen to someone talk about the power of creating a culture and a belief system. Um, and, and, you know, no one would have talked about that 20 years ago. But, boy, they, 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 you know, they certainly are now and should be increasingly. Well, one more question, and then I want to ask um, about how people can find out more about you. When you talk in the book about people who follow you, you break those down into a few different categories, and it's differently than I've heard before. Can you, can you share those with us briefly? When anyone starts out the process of, of creating a, 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 a following, if you will, which is really kind of how I like to describe leadership, not everybody's going to come running up to going, yippee, you know. Um, there'll be several different types of people that are going to manifest themselves. And how to manage those individuals uh, on the basis of what's in their heart is important. And I think there are four. There's a catalyst, an observer, a follower, and a resistor. Now, the catalysts are easy to find, but they stick up their hand and go, wow, love it, I'm in, and usually you'll hear from them. And, and, these, and by the way, they're terribly important because catalysts are usually the kind of people who are glass half full, they're people who are often people who are admired inside the company, and those are the people you want to identify saying, yep, these are the people who you know, are with me, and, and, and I want all of you to be as well. But at the same time, putting, putting followers and observers aside for a minute, the others are the resistors. Um, and you know, to go back to the cutlery story, there was a lady named Daisy. And you know, Daisy was like, ah, oh, well, we tried that before, and blah, 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 and this will never work, and yep, yep, yep. Now, I'm sure, you know, if you think about what a powerfully negative fact that has on the team and their belief system. And it's like rust. It's, it's literally corrosive. So resistors have to be very, very carefully dealt with at the same time that you're doing catalysts. And, you know, the objective is to convert them and give them reasons to make you buoyant. Uh, and it, and it, it means transparency. I mean, you've got to understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling and to try to bring them on board. And then what will happen is, as those people convert, and they do, the followers, who are really catalysts but not quite as, as, as confident, uh, will start to turn. And then the observers, who are big old fence-sitters, will realize, well, I guess these people are going in this direction. I'm going to go, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book is The Case of the Missing Cutlery, a leadership course for the rising star. It's a nice... Fairly short book and easy read. I think a lot of leaders would benefit from it, especially those who are early in their career, because it doesn't it it doesn't get too oh theoretical. Let's say it's a nice down to earth story and application uh, with some exercises that can really bring the leadership principles home for you. We're going to talk to Kevin as well about his current endeavor, especially Planet Jockey, which is a leadership game that his firm has made available. A lot of large companies are already taking advantage of that. We'll talk to Kevin on Game Changer about that. But for now, Kevin, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, great. They can, they can contact the, uh, www.missingcutlery.com uh, or just Google the book, The Case of the Missing Cutlery, and there's all kinds of stuff about it and, and, and where to buy Kevin Allen, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. That's my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And we'll provide the links for Kevin's website as well as his book on Amazon and his Twitter and Facebook page. 
On our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash 85, as in episode 85. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 